0: Chapter 88 of Consuelo by George Sand. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Dowager Margravine of Bereath, widow of the Margrave George William, by birth Princess of Saxe Wiesenfeld and subsequently Countess Huditz, had, it was said, BEEN BEAUTIFUL AS AN ANGEL, BUT SHE WAS SO CHANGED THAT HARDLY A TRACE OF HER CHARMS REMAINED. SHE WAS TALL, AND APPEARED TO HAVE HAD A FINE FIGURE, BUT TIME THAT GREAT DESTROYER HAD MADE SAD RAVAGES UPON IT. HER FACE WAS LONG AS WELL AS HER NOSE, WHICH LATTER FEATURE DISFIGURED HER GREATLY, BEING RED AND frostbitten. Her eyes, accustomed to give law to those with whom she associated, were large, brown, and well set, but so dim that their vivacity was much impaired. She had false eyebrows, very thick and black as ink. Her mouth, though large, was well formed and full of expression, her teeth regular and white as ivory, her complexion, though clear, was sallow and leaden-coloured, and her air and carriage were dignified, but somewhat affected. She was the lais of her time, and could only have pleased by her looks, for as to mind she had none. If you find this portrait rather severe, do not ascribe it to me, dear reader. It is word for word from the hands of a princess remarkable for her misfortunes, her domestic virtues, her petulance, and her pride, the Princess Wilhelmina of Prussia, sister of Frederick the Great, married to the hereditary prince of Bereath, nephew of the Countess Hoditz. She had the most caustic tongue, perhaps, that royal blood ever produced, but her portraits, it must be confessed, are masterly, and it is difficult in reading them not to believe they are correct. When Consuelo, her hair arranged by Keller and dressed, thanks to his care and zeal with elegant simplicity, was introduced by Porpora into the Margarine's Salon, She seated herself with him behind the harpsichord, which had been placed in a corner so as not to incommode the company. No one had yet arrived, so punctual was Popora, and the valets had just finished lighting the candles. The maestro commenced to try the instrument, and had hardly sounded a few notes, when a fair and exquisitely graceful young woman entered and approached him with graceful affability. As Popora saluted her with the greatest respect, and called her princess, Consuelo took her for the margravine, and according to the usual custom kissed her hand. That cold and colourless hand pressed the young girls with a cordiality which is rarely found among the great, and which immediately gained Consuelo's heart. The princess appeared to be about thirty years of age. Her form was elegant, without being faultless. Indeed there might be remarked in it certain deviations which seemed the result of great physical sufferings. Her features were remarkably noble and regular, but frightfully pale, and it seemed as if some concealed sorrow had imparted to them a worn and anxious expression. Her toilet was exquisite, but simple and decent, even to severity. An air of melancholy sweetness and timid modesty was diffused all over her actions, and the sound of her voice had something humble and affecting which touched Consuelo to the heart. Before the latter had time to comprehend that this was not the Margravine, the true Margravine appeared. She was then more than fifty, and if the portrait which has been given at the beginning of this chapter and which was drawn ten years before was at that period a little overcharged, it certainly was no longer so at the present moment. It even required a great stretch of good nature to imagine that the Countess Hoditz had been one of the beauties of Germany, although she was painted and adorned with the skill of a finished coquette. The embonpoint Point of riper years had destroyed the shape which the Margravine still persisted in imagining had still retained all its pristine beauty for her neck and shoulders braved the eye of a spectator with all the proud confidence of an antique statue. She wore flowers, diamonds, and feathers in her hair like a young lady, and her dress rustled with precious stones. "Mamma," said the princess, who had caused Consuelo's error, "'this is the young person whom Master Popora informed us of, and who will afford us the pleasure of hearing some of the fine music of his new opera.' "'That is no reason,' replied the margravine, measuring Consuelo from head to foot. "'Why, you should hold her by the hand in that manner. Go and seat yourself at the harpsichord, mademoiselle. I am delighted to see you. You will sing when the company has assembled. Master Popora, I salute you. Will you excuse my not attending to you? I perceive that something is amiss in my toilet. My daughter converse a little with Master Popora. He is a man of talent— whom I esteem. Having thus spoken in a rough and masculine voice, the portly Margravine turned heavily on her heel and re-entered her apartment. Hardly had she disappeared when the princess, her daughter, approaching Consuelo, once more took her hand with a delicate and touching kindness, as if to make it apparent that she protested against her mother's impertinence. She then engaged in conversation with her and Porpora, and testified a graceful and unaffected interest in them. Consuelo was still more sensible of this kind proceeding when, several persons having been introduced, she remarked in the habitual manners of the princess a coldness and reserve, at once proud and timid, which she evidently laid aside when addressing the maestro and herself. When the saloon was almost filled, Count Hoditz, who had dined from home entered in full dress, and as if he had been a stranger in his own house, proceeded respectfully to kiss the hand and inquire after the health of his noble spouse. The Margravine pretended to be of a very delicate constitution. She reclined upon a couch, inhaling every instant the perfume of a smelling bottle, and receiving the homage of her guests with an air which she thought languishing, but which was only disdainful, and in short, she was so completely ridiculous that Consuelo, although at first irritated and indignant at her insolence, ended by being highly amused, and promised herself a hearty laugh in drawing her portrait to her friend Beppo. The princess had once more approached the harpsichord, and did not lose an opportunity of addressing either a word or a smile to Consuelo when her mother was not observing her. This situation allowed Consuelo to overhear a little family scene which disclosed the state of matters in the household. Count Hoditz approached his daughter-in-law, took her hand, carried it to his lips, and kept it there for some instance with a very expressive look. The princess withdrew her hand, and addressed a few words to him in a cold and deferential manner. The Count did not listen to them and, continuing to gaze upon her. "'What?' "'My beautiful angel,' said he, "'always sad, always severe, always muffled to the chin. One would imagine that you wish to become a nun.' "'It is quite possible I shall come to that,' replied the princess in a low voice. "'The world has not treated me in such a manner as to inspire me with much attachment for its pleasures. The world would adore you.' "'and would throw itself at your feet "'if you did not affect to keep it at a distance by your severity. "'And as to the cloister, "'could you endure its horrors at your age and with your charms?' "'In more joyous days, "'and when far more beautiful than I am at present,' replied she, "'I endured the horrors of a more rigorous captivity. "'Can you have forgotten it?' "'But do not talk to me any longer, my lord.' Mamma is looking at you." Immediately the Count, as if moved by some piece of mechanism, quitted his daughter-in-law and approached Consuelo, whom he saluted very gravely. Then having addressed some words to her as an amateur respecting music in general, he opened the book which Porpora had placed upon the harpsichord, and pretending to be in search of something which he wished her to explain to him, he leaned upon the stand and spoke thus to her in a low voice. I saw the deserter yesterday morning, and his wife gave me a note. I request the beautiful Consuelo to forget a certain meeting, and in return for her silence I will forget a certain Joseph whom I just now saw in my antechamber. That certain Joseph, replied Consuelo, whom the discovery of the conjugal jealousy and constraint to which the Count was subjected had made quite easy, respecting the consequences of the adventures at Passau is an artist of talent, who will not long remain in antechambers. He is my brother, my comrade, and my friend. I have no reason to blush for my sentiments toward him. I have nothing to conceal in that respect, and I have nothing to request from your lordship's generosity, but a little indulgence for my voice, and a little protection for Joseph in the outset of his musical career." "'My interest is pledged for the said Joseph, as my admiration is already so for your beautiful voice, but I flatter myself that a certain jest on my part was never taken as serious. I was not so stupid, my lord, and besides, I know that a woman has never any reason to boast of having been made the subject of a jest of that nature.' "'It is enough, Signora,' said the Count.' from who the dowager never removed her eyes, and who was in a hurry to change his position in order not to excite her suspicion, the celebrated Consuelo must know how to make allowances for the gaiety and abandonment of a journey, and she may depend in future upon the respect and devotion of Count Hoditz. He replaced the book upon the harpsichord, and hastened to receive most obsequiously a personage who had just been announced with much pomp it was a little man who might have been taken for a woman in disguise so rosy was he so curled trinketed delicate genteel and perfumed it was he of whom maria theresa had said that she wished she could have set him in a ring it was also he whom she said she had made a diplomatist because she could make nothing better of him it was the austrian plenipotentiary, the Prime Minister, the Favourite, some even said the lover of the Empress. It was no less a personage, in short, than the celebrated Kaunitz, that statesman who held in its white hand ornamented with rings of a thousand colours all the tangled strings of European diplomacy. He appeared to listen with a grave air to the would-be grave personages who were supposed to converse with him on serious and important subjects. But suddenly he interrupted himself to ask Count Hoditz, "'Who is that young person I see there at the harpsichord? Is that the little girl I have heard of Porpor's protégé? That Porpor is an unfortunate wretch. I wish I could do something for him, but he is so exacting and so fanciful that all the other artists fear or hate him. When I speak to them of him, It is as if i showed them a medusa's head he tells one that he sings false another that his music is good for nothing and a third that he owes his success to intrigue and he expects with these savage and cutting remarks that people will listen to him and do injustice what the devil we don't live in the woods frankness is no longer in fashion and we cannot lead men by truth that little one is not amiss i rather like her face she is very young, is she not? They say that she had great success at Venice. Porpora must bring her to me to He wishes, said the princess, that you would procure her the honour of singing before the Empress, and I hope that you will not refuse him this favour. I ask it of you on my own account.' There is nothing so easy as to procure her an audience of the Empress, and it is sufficient that your Highness desires it to induce me to exert myself to forward the matter. But there is a personage more powerful at the theatre than even the Empress. It is Madame Tessy, and even if Her Majesty should take this girl under her protection, I doubt if the engagement would be signed without the approval of the all-powerful Tessy. They say it is you who spoils these ladies, my lord, and that without your indulgence they would not exert so much influence. What can I do, princess? Everyone is master in his own house. Her Majesty understands very clearly that if she were to interfere by an imperial decree in the affairs of the opera, the opera would go all astray. Now Her Majesty wishes that the opera should go on well, and that people should be amused there but how could that be if the prima donna takes cold on the very day she is to make her debut or if the tenor in the very middle of a scene of reconciliation instead of throwing himself into the arms of the bass gives him a smart cuff on the ear we have quite enough to do to satisfy the caprices of monsieur caffanello we have enjoyed some tranquillity since madame tessy and madame holzbauer have come to a good understanding with each other "'But if you throw an apple of discord upon the stage, "'our cards will be in a worse confusion than ever.' "'But a third woman is absolutely necessary,' said the Venetian ambassador, "'who warmly protected Porpora and his pupil. "'And here is an admirable one who offers her services.' "'If she be admirable, so much the worse for her. "'She would excite the jealousy of Madame Tessy, "'who is also admirable and wishes to be so alone.' "'She would enrage Madame Holzbauer, who wishes to be admirable also.' "'And who is not so?' retorted the ambassador. "'She is very well born. "'She is a person of good family,' replied Monsieur de Gaunitz diplomatically. "'But she cannot sing two parts at a time. "'She must needs let the mezzo-soprano take her proper part in the operas.' There is a lady called Corilla, who offers herself, and who is certainly one of the most beautiful creatures I have seen. Your Excellency has already seen her, then? The very day she arrived. But I have not heard her yet. She is ill. You will hear this candidate, and you cannot hesitate to give her the preference. It is possible. I even confess to you that her face, although less beautiful than that of the other, seems to me more agreeable. She has a gentle and modest manner, but my preference will do her no good, poor child. She must please Madame Tessy, without displeasing Madame Holtzbauer. and hitherto, notwithstanding the close friendship that unites those two ladies, everything that has been approved of by the one has always had the misfortune to be strongly disapproved of by the other.' A very trying crisis, indeed, said the princess with a slight expression of irony, on seeing the importance which these two statesmen attributed to green room dissensions. Here is our poor little protege weighed in the balance with Madame Corrille, and it is Monsieur Caffariello, I wager, who will throw his sword into one of the scales. When Consuelo had sung, everyone was unanimous in declaring that since Madame Hasse they had heard nothing like it, and Monsieur de Kaunitz, approaching her, said with a solemn air, Young lady, you sing better than Madame Tessy, but let this be in strict confidence, for if such a judgment get abroad you are lost, and will not appear this season at Vienna. Be prudent, therefore, very prudent, added he, lowering his voice and seating himself beside her. You have to struggle against great obstacles, and you cannot triumph except by address. Thereupon the great Kaunitz entered into the thousand windings of theatrical intrigue, and acquainted her minutely with all the little passions of the company, giving her, in short, a complete treatise on diplomatic science with reference to the stage consuelo listened to him her eyes wide open with astonishment and when he had finished as he had repeated twenty times in his harangue the words my last opera the opera which i had played last month she imagined that she had been mistaken on hearing him announced and that this personage, who was so well versed in all the mysteries of the dramatic career, could only be a director of the opera or a fashionable composer. She therefore felt quite at ease with him, and talked to him as she would have done to a person of her own profession. This freedom from constraint rendered her more gay and unreserved than the respect due to the all-powerful Prime Minister would have permitted her to be, and M. de Kaunitz found her charming. For a whole hour he attended to no one else. The Margravine was highly offended at such a breach of propriety. She hated the liberty of great courts, accustomed as she was to the solemn formalities of little ones. But she could no longer act the Margravine as she was no longer one. She was tolerated and passably well treated by the Empress, because she had abjured the Lutheran faith to become a Catholic this act of hypocrisy was sufficient to excuse every sort of misalliance even of crime at the court of austria and maria theresa in acting thus only followed the example which her father and mother had given her of welcoming whomsoever wished to escape from the rebuffs and disdain of protestant germany by taking refuge within the pale of the roman church but princess and catholic though she was the margravine was nothing at vienna and Monsieur de Kaunitz was everything. End of chapter 88